How do you deal with stress or anxiety? I've been talking some about that. Uh, sometimes we don't do very well with it. Uh, the America, the the uh, Anxiety and Depression Association of America has these suggestions for you. Take a time out, listen to music, meditate, get a massage, learn relaxation techniques, eat well-balanced meals, avoid alcohol and caffeine, get enough sleep, exercise daily, take deep breaths, inhale and exhale slowly, count to 10 or maybe to 20. Do your best, don't aim at perfection, but just do the best you can. Accept that you cannot control everything, welcome humor, laugh, Maintain a positive attitude. Get involved and volunteer. Learn what triggers your anxiety. And talk to someone. I looked over that list. I thought, pretty good list. I don't know that there's a whole lot there that I wouldn't agree with. It seems like that maybe some of that stuff that even has some root in biblical teaching. But how does God answer our question? How do we deal with stress and anxiety? The most definitive answer for the Christian is not on that list. And it's interesting that I check several particular associations that have as their motive to try to help people relax and deal with stress. And I didn't find any secular organizations that had this on the list. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your requests be, make, let your requests be made known to God. Last week we discussed anxiety as it was addressed in the New Testament, particularly in Jesus' personal teaching, and we began a study of this particular passage, which is our theme for the month of September. We noticed that the command by Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, is rather comprehensive and challenging because he says, do not be anxious about anything doesn't leave us much wiggle room there to deal with this aspect of anxiety. And although we talked about and discussed the different types of anxiety, there is good concern and there is bad concern, and God condemns one and not the other. We recognize that this presents to us a difficult task to deal with anxiety and stress. It also provides for us, this particular passage, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, provides for us a very concise and definitive answer. God rarely gives us a command and not provide for us the power to obey the command. We may not find it in the immediate context. We may not find it without diligent dis- discernment of God's scriptures. But God wants us to obey, not just for our sakes, but for his sakes as well. For his sake as well. And so he provides for us answers to the things that make our life difficult, even the aspect of obeying God. The Christian strategy for coping with anxiety is right here in the passage. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. So I'll take a couple minutes this morning and maybe as the Lord wills in some other other lessons this month and talk about prayer. I don't think there's anything more that, that is more directly related to our Christian life, certainly more pertinent to our daily life than the aspect the element of prayer, the activity, the discipline of praying to God. Understanding what prayer is all about, being able to divorce the biblical concept of prayer from the modern concept of the ritual of prayer is absolutely essential for us to be able to not only appreciate what we do when we kneel before God, but also the results of that and what we should expect from God when we pray. What I certainly know is that in terms of prayer, 
the place and effectiveness of praying to God about the events of life is under attack in our society. Now, Satan is unashamed to attack the principles of biblical truth, and certainly the disciplines and practice of the Christian have always been targets for him. But I find it fascinating today that more and more there is a disdain, almost an, uh, almost a direct disdain, uh, for prayer in the conversation that goes on. And those who offer thoughts and prayers to victims of a tragedy or promise to pray for the other person who is suffering are marginalized and ridiculed many times, even in social media and even today in mainstream media. To, to say someone that I'm sending you thoughts and prayers is ridiculed today. And those who do the ridiculing, I think, uh, view praying as an act of superstitious idolatry, or they, as many times they refer to it as this aspect of wishful thinking and fantasy. And the praying Christian, the person who engages in prayer, particularly in response to some great tragedy, is, is both intellectually and socially naive. That we're just offering up something that means nothing. And that's the way the world looks at, and that's the way our society and our culture looks at praying. Now let me make a couple comments about that and then we'll get into the biblical discussion of what the Bible tells us about that. But it's certainly true that people can and do use thoughts and prayers as an excuse to dodge responsibility. I can say I'm going to pray for you and I send my thoughts to you and do nothing about it or never think about it or never pray about it again. And certainly people can use that as a way to getting out of doing something that really would be beneficial to help someone else. The ability of our culture to marginalize prayer, and this is my second point about that, the, the ability of our culture to marginalize prayer and to ridicule the prayer is often made possible because even Christians today, and that includes you and I in that discussion, for many years have viewed prayer as a last resort superstition, that we think about prayer as mere wishful thinking, that I'll pray about that, meaning I really don't think things will change, I really don't see an answer to that problem, but the least I can do is pray, and the word least there sometimes is emphasized in our thinking about prayer. That praying is the least that we can do. We have no confidence in taking our request before God. We cannot expect our unbelieving friends to pay it any honor at all. And so we open the door for the present very prominent response of the world around us about prayer when we do not honor it ourselves by engaging in it or having the confidence that God would want us to have in it. But my third point about that is that prayer is not the problem here. That praying is not wishful thinking. It's not a last resort option seemingly to seemingly unavoidable or unsolvable problems. That when we go around talking about all we can do now is pray, we leave an impression that's not true about taking things before God. Not only is praying the first option of the Christian, it's the most powerful and potent option that any of us have to solve any problems in our life. Is that God can solve it. So it's not merely psychological coping that we're looking for. It's not a mechanism that we're looking for in terms of anxiety. It is a real life solution to the aspect of bringing peace to our hearts through faith and the confidence that we have in one who made us, created us, and ultimately controls everything around us. Prayer is the upward counterpart of the revelation of truth in Scripture. People that believe that God spoke to us and does, do, does speak to us through Scripture, that God cared enough about us to actually talk to us have to believe in the efficacy of prayer that he's given me the opportunity to speak to him. That it is the opposite end or the other counterpart to the revelation of truth. 
And many times we find ourselves and we find many times Christians having a great deal of confidence in what the Bible says and very little confidence in speaking to God and in praying to God. Prayer is the most fundamental and easily visible evidence of our faith in God. Think about that. How do you make known to others and to yourself and to even other Christians that you truly have confidence in God and that you have faith in what he, who He is and what He will do? One of the most easily visible evidences of someone who truly has faith and confidence in God is that they spend time on their knees talking to God. And they trust their life, their everyday life, to what He will do and not just to what they can do. If we believe in Him, then we will pray to Him. And so when I think about prayer in our present culture, I suppose I'm compelled to defend the power and the value of prayer. I will not stand by and let people ridicule what God has provided for me as a privilege Not only to engage in my own life, but in the life of my country and my society and the people around me and my family. But I will not defend prayer just with posts on social media or just with lessons like this from the pulpit. But I believe we need to defend prayer like the prophet Daniel, who humbly bowed before an open window when it was against the law to bow your knee and pray. Not as a matter of ritual practice, but rather as a matter of communicating with his creator. It was his custom with thanksgiving to make requests known unto God. And he would not allow the culture of his day to impede the privilege God had given him to speak to God. And that Daniel's prayer is evidence of how we respond to the attack against prayer in any society and in any culture. And it provides for us the clear evidence that people who believe in God's ability to act in society in which they live are rewarded with precisely that, with God's action. There's a biblical mandate for prayer in Scripture. So we shouldn't be ashamed to defend it nor to practice it. Prayer is vital to the Christian today because it was vital to the Christians before. And it's vital, it was vital to the Christians of the first century because first it was a fundamental and vital, vital part of the life of Jesus. You know, we look at the scene described in Mark chapter 1, probably a typical day of Jesus' life. In Capernaum, he taught in the synagogue. He cast out an unclean spirit. He became so popular that after he healed Peter's mother-in-law, the whole city outside camped around his door. And he healed everyone that was brought to him. So here was Jesus, the center of attention at Capernaum. Everyone was coming to him, thronging around him, wanting those who to whom they brought to be healed. In verse 33 and 34. And so Jesus, like you and I would no doubt do, went to bed that night thinking, what's tomorrow going to bring? What do I need to be ready for tomorrow? Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they had found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next town, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus saw another day like the day before set out to do the purposes of God, to do the work of God in preaching the gospel and healing those who need healing. But he started that day in solitary prayer. We easily recognize that this was a way of life for Jesus. It was not an isolated event. That prayer was a pattern for him. In Bethsaida, when they were so busy that he and his disciples didn't even have time to eat, he sent them away and departed to a mountain to pray. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, before choosing the twelve apostles, Jesus went unto a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Never done that. You? Maybe you have. All night in prayer to God. If there was nothing else uh, in the Bible about the essentiality and the importance of prayer in our life, this would be enough to compel us to be a people of prayer. That Jesus practiced an integral part of his relationship to God, his Father. Of course, we think as well about Gethsemane. Jesus was walking toward the greatest temptation of his life. He was going to pray alone there in that garden. He wasn't going there to muster a group of individuals to fight for his cause. He wasn't even going there to mull over Old Testament Scripture, as important as it was that the Scriptures were being fulfilled. He was going there for the solitary aspect of praying to the Father and having a personal communion with God. And so Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, we offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear. Jesus went there to pray. There's also a clear indication, of course, that Jesus' example spread out to those who would be his followers. Luke's first description of the church in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem was that they constantly devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. How important was prayer in those beginning uh, days and months of the Lord's church? How integral part of it was, was involved in the establishment of the Lord's body in Jerusalem? The fact that they devoted themselves to it, the very Greek language there would indicate that it was not an occasional or ritualistic thing, that they were devoted to it from the standpoint of a matter of religious devotion. It was an essential element of their spiritual life. And I believe what we see in terms of the activity of the first century church is what they recognized about continual prayer is that it was their first defense against the attack of the enemy. In Acts chapter 12, Herod murdered James. He arrested Peter with the very same intent because he saw that it pleased the Jews. And you go to Acts chapter 12 and verse 3 and you see the distressing circumstances there. And, he, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he there, Herod, proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring them before the people after the Passover. Peter therefore was kept in prison. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Verse 5 is fascinating, isn't it? The two sides of the whole scenario here. One is that Peter was in prison, kept there by who? By Herod. But what was the church doing about it? How were they responding to this fact that the civil government had risen up and persecuted them and taken their leader and incarcerated him? The church was praying. The church was praying. Now, how would all that work out? Would Peter's army and soldiers and all of that be able to keep Peter in prison? Will he be able to destroy the church at Jerusalem? Would he disrupt the progress of the gospel? How would this prayer, these thoughts and prayers that seemingly in our world are so innocuous and without any power, match up against the power of the civil government in Acts chapter 12? Peter didn't stay in prison long. And after God's angel delivered Peter from prison, he went to the house of Mary and found the disciples there. And what were they doing in verse 12? They were still praying. They were still praying. The apostolic message teaches the necessity of constant prayer. It's easy to look in the New Testament and see the command to pray earnestly, to pray consistently. 
And those who neglected prayer were no doubt by the very words of the apostles disobeying God. In Romans chapter 12, Paul there said they should continue steadfastly in prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, Paul said, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving in thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, who may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, he says, I Therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And James instructs us that we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. So the aspect of intercessory prayer, the, the, the element of supplications in behalf of those who are over us in authority, the interaction of prayer with their everyday life is consistent with apostolic teaching. In fact, it's an integral part of apostolic teaching. So we see from the standpoint of what the biblical record presents to us that from the very beginning of God's people, there's been this emphasis on the activity of prayer. Not just something that was done in a church building on occasion, but something that interacted with their daily life. Something that Christians saw not as a last option, but as a first option. As they dealt with the circumstances, sometimes distressing circumstances, of their own life. But even when prayer is constant, even when it's habitual, even if it becomes a way of life, it can be wrong. And so Jesus as well taught about this aspect of dysfunctional prayer. And that we have to be careful as we ingrain the practice of prayer in our society that it doesn't become simply a ritual or something that, you see, sets aside the true purpose and communion of prayer. The prominent religious of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, prayed often several times a day, but it was nothing close to what God desired. And when Jesus was on, was on the scene, He easily pointed that out. That here's something God gave you to do, but you've distorted it, you've destroyed it. Matthew chapter 6, When you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues at the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Heavenly Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. It's often perplexed me how people that belong to God for so long and for so many generations where prayer and talking to God had been such an, an important part of their existence and their covenant relationship, how they could so distort the practice of prayer. How could the simple act of prayer become so much different than what God intended it to be? The Pharisees, as Jesus points out, were seeking the approval of men. This ought to catch our attention about prayer today. If we're serious about using prayer in the way that God would have us to use it and not engage simply in something that is meaningless or that fits the bill of the way the world sees praying as an act of superstition, then we ought to take notice here of how it happened in the day in which Jesus lived. And what Jesus pointed out is the real problem here. That these folks were praying to seek to, to please men and not to please God. They prayed to be heard by others and not to be heard by God. And in essence, they weren't speaking to God, they were speaking to themselves. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not speaking, about, not speaking to ourselves. In a, if our focus on prayer is whether or not a person always uses the right words, whether the prayer is the right length that fits into the format of our service that we come together, and prayer is just something to be seen outwardly, then we're traveling the same pathway. They fail to understand the true value of prayer in the eyes of God because prayer in its, you see, biblical sense is communication. It's not liturgy. That's pretty simple, isn't it? What is prayer? It's talking to God. It's communicating with God. 
In the same way that you would communicate, or the same way we would understand communication, maybe the better way to say that, in the same way we would understand communication between one another. Now my communication to my Creator is not the same communication I would have with you. And I think it, 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 it arrests my attention sometimes when I hear people in a casual way address without any reverence the Creator of the world and the universe. There's a sense of respect that ought to be involved, always involved the language that we use as we speak to God. But when we think about what prayer is, what God expects it to be, it's certainly making known our request to Him. It's taking the issues of our life and presenting to Him, speaking to Him about them. And so we begin to see our prayers as that simply which fits a format of liturgy. The idea of liturgy is defined as a rite or body of rites prescribed for public worship. If we see it as liturgy, just something to be put into a place in public worship, you know we have one at the beginning and one at the end, and that this is where our prayers are. Our prayers are fit into a program of public worship. That we're traveling that path of failing to understand the true meaning of prayer, and it will become less and less meaningful to us the longer we prescribe prayer in that way. We need to interpret prayer from the standpoint whether it involves, it's involved in a public assembly or in our closets as the aspect of true communication with God. And as we mentioned earlier, communication is the upward counterpart to the revealed word that God is speaking to us and He gives us the privilege as well to speak to Him. Now, as we said, our communication to God is not equal to His communication to us. In His communication, He reveals to us what we cannot know apart from revelation, that which ultimately is truth. In prayer, we tell God what He already knows, and many times it's not what really is true. We say, well, this is what's best for me, and we don't know if it's what's best for us. That doesn't forestall the aspect or prohibit the, certainly the necessity that we take our, our request before Him. But to understand that that's exactly what prayer is, and that we desperately need to want to, desire to speak to God about our lives. David was a man who desperately desired for God to hear the meditation of his heart. And as he ran for his life, the wilderness of Ziph, he was constantly in contact with the God who was over him. He had no one else, but God, David had a closer relationship to God than anyone else who may very well have come along his way. In the fifth psalm, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. I will look up. Now that's important, isn't it? That we look up. It's, it's easier for us to look around. And sometimes when life gets us down, it's easy for us to, about, to, to, to stoop our head and look down. But to look up. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 4. That looking up is the solution to the anxieties and the troubles of life. Prayer is also a communication that's based upon an ongoing relationship. Effective and meaningful prayer is linked to the life that we're living before God. It is connected with the everyday events of our life. I believe this can be viewed in, seeing, in looking at the Bible and recognizing that not everyone had the hope that God would listen to their prayer. Not everyone, God didn't say to everybody, I'll, I'll, I'll hear what you say, just say it. And sometimes that's a, mis, that's a misunderstanding about the, about the idea of prayer, that anybody can pray to God just like anybody can think good thoughts. Learning to think good thoughts is not the same thing as prayer. Prayer is based upon a relationship. 
And what will obstruct our prayers? Is there anything to get in the way of us talking to God? Anything that would cause God not to hear what we say? Well, there are some things the Bible mentions. We talked about in Matthew chapter 6, the aspect of hypocrisy. That the, 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 the hypocritical prayer of the Pharisees. He says you got your reward when you do it the scene of men. People look up to you because you're a praying person. That's it. That's all I can promise you. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus taught a parable about a publican and a Pharisee who went into the temple to pray. God listened to the humble one, but not to the proud one. James chapter 4, verse 3, James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so James says, if you pray for what you want, and that's all the reason you pray is to get what you want, you're asking amiss, and you're not going to get what you want. Proverbs, the 28th chapter, the proverb writer says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayers are an abomination. A person that's unwilling to listen to God's word has no promise that God will listen to his. The person who lives with sin, unrepented, because as Isaiah says in chapter 59, sin separates us from God. And it says there that his, 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 that his hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So the prophet was telling Isaiah, your, your unrepentant sin's getting in the way here. You want God to bless you, and maybe even asking God to bless you, but as long as you live this way, there is no promise. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, the apostle presents this very same principle. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Continue to rebel and your sin against God. There's no promise God's going to listen to your prayer. Peter even gives a specific application in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. When he talks about husbands who should dwell with their wives according to understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. What Peter would point out, I believe, in that particular passage is that if you don't treat other people right and you disrespect the relationship, you have no promise that God will hear your prayers, that you'll get what you want out of the relationship or out of life. The word hinder there means to impede somebody's course. It was a word that was used in the, regular, in, in the secular language that meant to go along and break up a road. And armies would do that sometimes when they knew the enemy was coming. They'd go in and they'd plow up the road and break up the way. So they'd have to go around some other way. And so the aspect here is that we put obstacles in our own way of the privilege of speaking to God when we fail to treat one another with respect and honor. And then James says, you can't ask doubting. That anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all liberally and without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with, not, with no doubting. For you, doubts is like a wave of sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let, that man suppose, let not that man suppose he receive anything from the Lord. James says you can't count on it if you're going to ask and think, well, I don't really think I'm going to get this. You're going to ask doubting without having any confidence that God's going to actually provide for you what you're asking for. You sabotage that from the very beginning. Now, there are other issues involved in whether or not God will give us what we ask for. And certainly the Bible points those out. But understand that doubt and a lack of faith and confidence in God sabotages it right at the start. We've got to be careful about that. Prayer is communication is expression of dependence. And I would suggest to you that this is true not only from the standpoint, uh, not only from the standpoint of the aspect that we can't that we, we pray in time we can't get what we want through anything that we do and therefore we have to depend upon God. 
but that it's that way because that's the way God wants us to live every moment of our life. Why does God say pray all the time? Why does He say pray it without ceasing? Why does He say the prayer ought to be constant and an integral habit of our life? Because prayer is certainly an element of our dependence upon God. And how much does God want you to depend upon Him? How many hours of the day are you to depend upon God and put your faith and your trust in Him? Authentic prayer, you see, can never be separated from the aspect of everyday life. And it can never be separated from the humble heart. Luke 18, the publican and the Pharisee. And so our prayer life, as we might call it, is as much an indication of our faith and submissiveness towards God as our willingness to assemble once a week or to abstain from wickedness or anything else that we might do on a regular basis before God. So Jesus warned about the dysfunctional prayers of the Pharisees. And when he did that, he provided a model prayer for the disciples. Fittingly, that would be so, wouldn't it? Here's how not to pray. Well, George, teach us to pray. What's the positive model for prayer? Unfortunately, that prayer that Jesus provides, that model prayer that Jesus recites to the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, unfortunately and ironically, has become just the opposite of what God, was, Jesus was teaching in those particular passages. What we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer has become a piece of liturgy that violates the very principles that are being taught in that passage. That's tragic, isn't it? When Jesus was saying, power is not in the words themselves, the people would take his words and make them some sort of magic formula. It would be just the opposite. There's no indication the disciples ever used the very same words in their own prayers and the teachings. But the words do point to the very element of what prayer is all about. Not only in what tells Jesus tells us to pray about, the elements that we pray about in our life, but to the perspective of the idea here that prayer is an expression of our dependence upon Him, that every word of the prayer that Jesus presents here as a model prayer evidences that. And so, our Father, He says, call God your Father. He's the Father. I'm the child. Hallowed be your name. He's the deity. I'm the worshiper. Your kingdom come. He's the sovereign king. I am the submissive citizen. Thy will be done. He's the master. I'm the servant. Give us this day our daily bread. He's the one who gives. I'm the one who receives. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. He's the savior. I'm the sinner. Do not lead us into temptation. He's leading. I'm following. You see... Throughout the prayer, what Jesus is emphasizing to His disciples is the position that they have before God. It's where they're at and where God's at, and that's what prayer is all about. It's not horizontal speaking to a friend beside me. It's addressing the Creator of the universe and the deity that I worship and the one who can save me from my sins, the only one who can lead me in the right path. I'm completely dependent upon God for everything that He gives, and therefore, because I'm dependent upon Him, what should I do? I should pray. I should pray. Not just now and then. Not just in assembly. Not as a piece of liturgy to be presented in a public worship. But as a daily recognizable element of my communication in life, I pray to God and I pray to Him first. Now something we mentioned in the Bible class that I sort of want to include here at the end is the confidence of the Christian to be heard by God. On what is that based? Well, there's not just one answer to that, I think, biblically. The confidence I have that God will answer my prayers is that He's my Father and He wants what's best for me. And Jesus points that out. If a son says to a father, 
Give me a piece of bread. The father doesn't give him a scorpion or a rock. He gives him what he wants, what he needs. He gives him what he's asking for because the father knows what he's asking for is what is best for him. So God's over all that. He knows all of that. He's not in the dark about that. He knows exactly what I need. So when I ask him, he's going to be very willing to give it for me because he loves me and he's my father. So this aspect of prayer is not wrenching something out of the hands of a tyrant. Is the confidence that when I speak words before God, He is ever ready to listen to what I have to say and to give me what I desire. But there's another answer that I think goes deeper than that. Does God answer my prayers for my sake? Or can I understand that He answers my prayers for His sake? That He answers my prayers and is willing to answer my prayers because it brings glory to Him. It provides honor to Him and not just to me. When I pray to God and He gives me what I want, He establishes Himself not only in my own heart but in the hearts of all others who understand what's going on, that He truly is my Father, that He is the King, that He is the Savior, that He's all of these things to which I constantly depend because He answers my prayer. It's not like the prophets of Baal who cut themselves and fall down on their faces and cry to a God who doesn't exist. That prayer on that mountain is, you see, evident and as ardent as it was, was crying in the darkness to nothing. There was no glory in those prayers, but when Elijah prayed to God and there was immediately action on the behalf of God to lick up that, to burn up that sacrifice and lick up the water with the flames and everyone saw it, who got the credit for that? Well, God did. And I could very well suppose that the reason God answered Elijah's prayer was not for Elijah's sake. It's interesting that he found himself in total depression after all of that. And God came and said, wait, 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 Elijah, you don't need to be depressed. My honor still stands. What I did at Mount Carmel, that still stands. I'm still God, sovereign. we got work to do. So God answers his prayer in my behalf and even the meager things of life as though somehow God doesn't care about those meager things in my life. He answers my prayers about those things, not for my sake, but for his sake. He is the God of the universe and he cares about his children. And when he answers those prayers, he establishes himself as the one who's doing what he's doing for his sake. And as we mentioned this morning in our Bible class, that's the very approach that very spiritual men have made to God. When Moses was pleading with God to not destroy the nation and make a nation of himself, he says, God, remember the Egyptians, what they're going to say about this. You brought the people out of Egypt and you've delivered them. Do not destroy them now. You have promises that you've made. And Moses wasn't reminding God of something he'd forgotten. But Moses was making the approach that God could, would not, not could not, but would not refuse. Moses was addressing God on the basis of purposes of God and not the purposes of himself. I need to understand that about God. God is passionately committed to his purposes. And when I, as his child, am praying about his purposes, when I'm asking him to do something that goes along with what he desires to do and what he's promised to do, God will not say no. And that's why God can say to his disciples, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. The parameters of that is they were going to ask about the mission that God had given them to do, the progress of the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, when Paul tells the Thessalonians, I'm so glad that you prayed for me because when you prayed for me, things went well. And he says, continue to pray that the word of the Lord might spread ahead, might speed ahead and be honored. That it might run ahead and be honored. He told the Thessalonians to pray about that and it would happen. How could Paul be so sure? 
He'd already been in prison a couple times. How could he know that just by praying that was going to happen? Because what he was telling to pray about were things that would be done for the sake of God and not for the sake of himself. That's why we don't need to allow this culture to ridicule us, marginalize us, because we pray to God. If there's anybody on this planet that knows what should know and does know what God's plans are, it's you and I. So we know how to pray and what to pray about, what's important to pray about. We know what we can pray about things that God will not say no to. He will provide a way for the purposes that he's presented, for the salvation of those who are lost, for the promotion of his kingdom on this earth. You will pray about my spiritual development. He will give me what I pray about for my spiritual development. So if I need patience, I pray about patience, he'll give it to me. I might not like the way he's going to give it to me, but he'll give it to me. If I pray about com- for compassion, he'll give me compassion. If I pray for the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit will be what God will provide. Now that doesn't mean I won't have to do anything to bring those about, that I have no responsibility. But understand, I don't have to in any way back away from, or sometimes rationalize away, God's commitment to those purposes that I should pray for, because they are for his sake and not mine. And that's what prayer, I think, involves. So authentic prayer is based on relationship with God through Christ. One of the great misunderstandings of prayer is that is the popular teaching today that a person becomes a Christian through prayer. There's no indication that anyone ever became a Christian through offering a prayer to God. It's simply not in the scriptures. Sinners receive forgiveness when they, through their faith, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They repent of their sins. They confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and they're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The example of Paul, Saul of Tarsus is praying ardently and passionately the days before his baptism indicate that prayer for him was not all. It wasn't, you see, a sinner's prayer for forgiveness. It was a prayer that God would show him what to do to be saved. And that's what God did. So that those who come to Christ today receive the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of their sins, blessing to the access of God, do that on the basis of their obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you obey him? Will you come this morning if you're not a Christian? There are great privileges and blessings, spiritual blessings that are found nowhere else than in Jesus Christ. And one of those we've talked about even this morning. You want to be able to talk to your Creator with the confidence that He will listen to you, that even the things you talk about, that you experience in your everyday life become His ardent desire in His great concern. Become His child. Come into His family. Submit to His leadership. Be a citizen in His kingdom. Can we help you do that while we stand there, while we sit?